You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Western history has led us to the most prosperous age in the history of humanity, and yet more and more our kids are taught to be ashamed of their country. Are you tired of Common Core, Howard Zinn-influenced revisionist history in our schools? Do you want your family to have fun learning about history that you can trust? Do you want your kids to learn to love history? then drivethroughhistory.com is for you. The guys over at drivethroughhistory.com have created a world of entertaining, on-location, video-based courses for your kids. They've got ancient history, American history, biblical history, and world history. Perfect for all of you who find yourself homeschooling for the first time. It's fun, and your kids are going to love it. To learn more, head over to drivethruhistory.com forward slash Zuby, Z-U-B-Y where they've got streamed courses and old-school DVDs, and you can use the code ZUBY, Z-U-B-Y, at checkout for 20% off any order. That's drive, T-H-R-U, history.com, forward slash ZUBY. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on the founder and CEO of coinfloor.co.uk, and this is Obi Nwosu. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome, man. It's a pleasure. So people won't know this, but I'm going to be straight up front, and I'm going to say that we recorded an entire podcast yesterday. It was an incredible conversation, and then I realized that my sound was coming through the complete wrong microphone. It was coming through my laptop mic rather than my proper microphone. So my audio was garbage. So I had to reach back out to Obi and he very graciously was happy to re-record this conversation. So that's just a little bit of background info there. So we're going to go over some of the same things we did before that you never heard. And we're also going to go over some new things as well today. But um, Obi, for people who are not familiar with you, um, introduce yourself to the people. So yeah, it, it was it was an amazing conversation. Um, I hope that we we do it justice. Um, uh, probably one of the best conversations I had in in, in a long time. So anyway, um, my name's Obi Noisu, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Coinfloor. And Coinfloor is the UK's longest running Bitcoin exchange. So quite simply, we allow people to buy and sell Bitcoin for mainly pounds, but also dollars and euro. And um, we try to make buying Bitcoin easy. Our history and my history, because it's heavily intertwined, goes back seven years now. Um, As I said, 2013 was when we launched. And my introduction to Bitcoin actually happened in 2011. Um, As a background on myself, um, I'm a Anglo-Gerian. (laughs) <laughs> um, conceived in Nigeria, born in um, in the UK in London. So my mother made it to England, and then like combat rolled down um, <laughs> down the stairs into 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 Heathrow Airport. Um, grew up in a council estate in West London. Um, West is best um, in some things, in other things not so much. And um, yeah, I experienced all aspects of life from partying or from playing on the street and being spat at as a kid to um, working in some of the um, fastest growing um, e-commerce startups in Europe. Mm. And um, what, was your, what was your childhood like growing up in London? What was your experience like? It was interesting. It was, it was, um, there were multiple sides to my experience. So on one side, um, I had a... Um, by Nigerian standards, very liberal um, um, parents, but mm-hmm. by Western 
by the standards of my Western mates, um, very, very strict parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so they taught and um, ensured that I was, you know, I worked hard, I studied, and I understood the value of education and, and, uh, and effort. Um, my mother was, was one of the hardest working people um, you can ever know. My, my father is an incredibly um, intellectually gifted guy mm-hmm. um, and probably an argumentation expert. I don't think anybody, I can never recall anyone winning an argument with him. <laughs> um, even if he doesn't know about the subject, he'll still win the argument. <laughs> And um, so that side led me to work hard and study, et cetera. Um, on the other side, I experienced um, the experience of many other um, people, um, black people growing up in inner city London as, um, uh, on a council estate. So you would experience racism, you would experience prejudice, um, but um, you would also form incredible friendships and relationships as a result as well. And it would harden the, harden the diamond, as I'd like to say. Yeah. I was actually going to say, how do you think those sort of experiences shaped you in terms of what you've gone on to do now and, you know, all of the success that you, that you have achieved? I mean, you're very much a leader in what you do. You're, you know, progressing forwards. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, like, I, give, I give props where props are due. And um, to come from that situation a lot of people you know a lot of people come from that situation and it can often go to very polar opposite different ways some people will use that as like rocket fuel and motivation to go forward and strive and achieve and prove to people and show people hey look you can come from here and you can still succeed whereas other people sort of embrace more of a a victim type of mentality and they use that as a permanent alibi or permanent excuse or reason as to why they're not achieving or why they're not successful. So what do you think it is that set you apart in that regard? Yeah, so um, it's a really interesting one. Um, one thing is, um, you mentioned that a lot of people use to prove um, that you know, they can succeed and advance. And I, I'd, I'd like to think about that question um, from a different angle, um, mm-hmm. in the sense that, why do we even have to prove anything? Mm-hmm. Um, some people who come from other backgrounds basically have the the privilege to not have to prove anything to anybody. Sure. And we are we do live in a world where that is important. Now this this is the reality. And so I do realize that wherever I go, I am an ambassador for an entire group of people mm-hmm. without realizing it. And I have that extra responsibility, that extra overhead that um, other people don't have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, is, if I was a woman as well, I'm not. As you may not have realized, um, but I'm not. <laughs> but I'd imagine that I, they'll have to prove, that they'll have this extra overhead of proving certain, that they don't conform to certain and negative stereotypes about themselves, which is an extra overhead and impediment that other people don't have. But it is the reality of the world, and that's where we live. Mm-hmm. However, I, for me personally, I have a high level view that I can't put an exact percentage, but I guess in the high 90s or definitely over 90% of what I've achieved in my life has nothing to do with me. And this is a very counter, um, counter, this is a, an uncommon viewpoint, but I, but again, I tend to think that if you just think about it for a moment, it's pretty obvious. Um, I did not control where I was born. I did not control that I was born able-bodied and healthy. I did not control that I was born male. Um, I did not control that I just scraped above six foot tall, which again gives you another advantage. And many other things which, when we think about it, are probably far more important in terms of my success than my own personal effort. Um, I believe I work really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I believe that from myself internally, but also a number of people have told me that over my life, which validates it as well. Yeah. But I am pretty sure that a disabled girl in um, a poverty-stricken part of Calcutta who works 100 times harder than me is unlikely to get anywhere near to my level of success, mm-hmm. which evidences the fact that vast majority of my success has got nothing to do with me. Now, within that 10%, um, that's where there's a flex. And I have put in this 
in a, in a, a lot of effort over that time. And that, um, but I always try to remain humble. Yeah. But what I do think is that that period of time that, that allowed me to work as hard as I do, um, I can go back through time and remember that when I was a, a teenager, there, uh, something happened. And I think most people go through this point where they make a decision as to whether they're going to let reality push them or let or push reality. Uh-huh. And um, i.e. they're going to the master of fate or they're going to or they're going to believe that fate um fate is 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 the is the ruler and they're just part of the story um now i believe again an element of luck happens here because you make this decision generally in your teenage years because your emotions are at 110 percent you know you're going through puberty, et cetera. And even relatively small things in retrospect seem huge. It could have been, I asked some girl on a date and she said no, and I mean, the, the sky was falling and I thought that, you know, the world would end tomorrow. I can't remember exactly what it was, but at some point I made this decision about um, the world. And it could very well be that I made a decision to go the right direction and have a, a more of a sort of um, solution-focused um, positive mindset. Because at that time, the preponderance, the majority of things happening to me were positive. Okay. And or it could have, and if, and I realized at that time I could have also easily gone the other way if the people around me, the, my my um, relationships and my family had a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think that's correct. I mean, I think um, you know, an interesting thing in the way different people view the world is always the you know, the, the nature versus nurture debate, the um, individuality versus the system and the environment. And I think anyone sensible recognizes that both of these things, all of these things play a factor. But I think one thing that shapes people's worldviews a lot is, I guess, how much percentage they give to each one. So sort of in my own worldview, I sort of feel like you're... Um, downplaying your own role in this. So in my, in my view, I think, uh, you know, that 90, 10 might be, might be swapped around. Like I, I understand the perspective because I think certainly from, um, you know, if people want to talk about privilege, I mean, I think the most obvious privileges would be say Western or developing, being born in a developing country, sorry, being born in a developed country privilege, as you sort of already alluded to being born in the UK rather than in India or lots of other countries. I think a big one is a chronological, right? Being born in the 1970s or 1980s or 1990s or 2000s, rather than the 1500s or the 1200s or whatever BC. Um, I think those are, those are massive factors. Of course, having, having a stable family, coming from a two-parent household, etc. I think those are probably, well, not, not probably, I think those are actually much bigger privileges, if someone wants to call them that, than the things that people tend to focus on, such as gender or um, race or sexuality, etc. I'm aware all of these things can come with different advantages and, different, and disadvantages in different areas, different places, different regions, different activities, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, I, if I look at the world, if I look at people in it, even if I just look at the UK, there are, you know, realistically, there are, there are millions of people who have a similar background to any of us, really. And where those people end up, I do believe is, sure, there's a luck component once, you, once you're beyond the sort of dint of birth aspect. But I do really think it comes down to people's mindset and their actions and their, and their choices. And I think, yeah, for some people, it's going to be easier than others in certain ways. For some people, it's going to be harder. But I do believe, and, and you know, I think this is an optimistic belief, and I think it's an empowering belief to think that, look, even if someone comes from, you know, not a, a bad position on, on all of these things, technically, if they're, in a, if they're in a free society that does have opportunity, you know, in some, some places, you know, kind of no chance. Like, unless you can get out of there, you're not going to rise. But I do think in the UK in the USA and countries like that, at least in the modern world, um, everybody does have that opportunity to rise. 
So that's kind of my own perspective on that. So uh, I I agree with a lot of what you say. Mm. Um, there are things that I, I disagree with. Um, I think, though, one of them is a premise, which is if there's a condition of that, which if it existed, I would completely agree. Which okay, if we live in a free society, but I think that... But the reality is we, we don't live in a free meritocratic um, society. And that, and that is the fundamental flaw. And if we did, then mm-hmm. all of those, those things would be true. I also think right at the beginning, we talked about nature versus nurture. But all the things you discussed weren't either nature or nurture. So n- nature, n- nature is what you're genetically born with. And I, I personally also agree that that's uh, a small... I don't, you don't know the percentage, but my own personal views is a very small percentage mm-hmm. of it. Nurture is, you know, the people who you grew up with and, and what they said to you and how they helped you and the family, etc. Mm-hmm. But where you were born, your ethnicity, um, your gender have got nothing to do with nature or nurture mm-hmm. in, in a way. They don't. Um, they, they're, they're, that's to do with discrimination. People discriminate based on those things but they don't affect the quality of your argumentation. They don't affect which, you, but the people around you who you grew up with would. Mm. Um, they don't affect um, the quality of your thinking. They don't acquit, affect how hard you work. But even then, even with all of that, if you can, they do affect your ability to live in a fair society. So my having thought about this and experienced this through my life, my view is you have to work with what we've got but we have to also be pragmatic and try to improve this environment so we can get closer to a meritocratic world. Mm-hmm. And my general view is you're not going to find the meritocratic world in the physical world. You're going to have to find that in, in just like, you know, people were having a bad lot in the UK. They decided to go to the new world in the US or New Zealand or so on to discover better places where they could start a new and former world in the way they want to be mm-hmm. the equivalent of that would be to go if you're really um if you're really ultra wealthy you might try to do an elon musk and go to mars mm-hmm. um and form your own economy and currency and so on but there's a much simpler solution you go into cyberspace this is where all the growth in businesses all the growth in industry it removes um disadvantages based on location you are able to transact with people um especially with technologies like bitcoin and so on um, pseudonymously or anonymously. So in, th- in those environments, and we've already seen studies are showing um, in markets where all the, t- all the parties are anonymous to each other or, or at least pseudonymous, that customer service levels go up, quality of product goes up, and the people who succeed come from every background and they are a demographic mix which actually mi- um, fits the world. And that's the only place on the planet where that happened. Why is that? Because there is no mechanism to discriminate. And that's why I'm really excited about this explosion of, of things happening over the last, even in the last six months with coronavirus, remote working, VR, and of course, Bitcoin, that are leading to this more meritocratic world. In summary, as we move towards anonymity, we move towards meritocracy. Mm. That's a really interesting take. I mean, you're actually the only person I've ever spoken to who views it from that perspective. I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, VR and Bitcoin and different types of technology, but coming from it from the angle of wanting to essentially eliminate any forms of unfair prejudices or biases or discrimination, I think that's a really interesting perspective do you do you have any fears or concerns about how that will affect our our humanity for lack of a better term because i'm very interested in you know virtual reality i'm interested in artificial intelligence the future i'm someone who does spend a lot of time online i you know i'm very well known on social media and all that so i obviously embrace it to a degree but i'm also honestly the idea of like living in a primarily virtual world where I'm no longer me and <laughs> you are no longer you, essentially, at least in terms of you know, what we're seeing and what we're hearing. There's something about that that I can't articulate it perfectly, but there's something about that that like really disturbs me, actually, and sort of freaks me out. Um, I don't know if you share any of those concerns. Um, 
I share those concerns, but I, I, I tend to think that anything that scares me uh, suggests that you're doing something useful and interesting. Um, in, I mean, I study computer science and cognitive science in university, so basically AI. I was trying to build our new robot overlords. Um, <laughs> and you know, um, and um, one part of sort of, of computation theory is uh, there's something called Shannon's information theory, which basically says that the less common an idea or a piece of information is, the more valuable it is. And we can see statistically, looking at all information created, that the uncommon ideas are the valuable ideas. And the common ideas and the common view is, is less valuable. And that helps us in multiple different ways. Can you, can, you, can, um, you ex- can you explain that a little? Because that doesn't sound intuitive to me. So let's, okay. So for example, let's take a, um, a document mm-hmm. and you want to, if you want to try to have a program, go through the doc- document to work out what to, to summarize the document and find the important stuff and summarize the document. Mm-hmm. If, if you look at the um, frequency of a word and you order it by frequency, um, and then sort of focus around summarizing the bits around the, which are less frequent, you will mm-hmm. find you will get the, the most effective summary. So okay. think about words are going to be very common in a document. The, okay. Yeah. Okay. A, they're, they're not really useful to you understanding that document, mm-hmm. but um, coronavirus, well, or maybe we may not be able to say that. Word, <laughs> I, don't I, I think um, you, can, yeah. you know, um, I have things like um, flossy nasi nahili pilification, you know, mm-hmm. the longest word in the UK dictionary. If that existed in that document for some reason, you probably want to sort of um, look around that part of the text because you're probably talking about something that's uncommon and therefore interesting. Okay. So, um, so, so, so that's you, an example. Okay. So do you, do you mean from, you mean from a computational perspective rather than from a societal perspective? But I, I, I think that if it's in life in general, I always try to feel that if that my thoughts, if my idea seems to make logical sense mm-hmm. and it's an uncommon idea, it might be uh, an, an interesting insight that's worthy of mm-hmm. attention. So the fact that you know, many other people are saying it, for me, is a tick that I'm probably onto something because the stats and data sort of supports it and, not, and it's an uncommon view. Um, okay. But... Yes, it does scare me, but it's still going to be inevitable. Just because mm-hmm. it scares me doesn't stop it, doesn't stop stop it from happening. We can look, we can see the advance of of the internet. Most commerce is moving online. Most entertainment is moving online. Most marketing is moving online. The network effects of transacting in a digital world far outstrip those of the physical world. So we know that where this story is definitely going. Mm-hmm. And so now we can either get in early, if, if you're a first mover, if you're one of those, um, you know, um, first settlers in the new world, mm-hmm. and you got there early, then you are going to benefit. If you got to Manhattan Island, when it was still arable land only a couple of hundred years ago, when land was very inexpensive, you'll be doing, your family will be doing very well right now. Sure. Um, and Bitcoin land and cyberspace right now, our new world is basically flat land and open wide plains with, with, very few, with very few obstructions and no one yet really interested in to any great degree. And so the opportunity right now, and it's only a once in a, in a, in a, in a generational opportunity is, mm-hmm. is, is amazing, but it's also very scary. Yeah. But it, and we have to accept in this world we will be transacting and living and 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 beyond at the point of waking up to the point we sleep we we already are what what percentage of your time do you now in remote workland spend online versus spending interacting in the physical world if you take out going to the toilet which mm-hmm. I don't really think people think of when they think of living um, <laughs> or you know or washing their teeth. Yes, they are alive, but it's just sort of you're on autopilot mode. Mm-hmm. So if you're asleep, going to the toilet, eating just just for the sake of fuel, or or or, um, or um, you know performing your other sanitary duties, what percentage of your life are you not living in a digital world right now? Yeah, at this at this moment in time, given these lockdowns, then it's a high percentage for myself and for for a lot of people, definitely. Well, so, and even, even after this, and, and this is a key thing about the lockdown, uh, it's causing to play, it's causing to put into place and the, 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 
the biological weapon that caused this to start. I won't, mm. it should not be named. <laughs> uh, it's, it's causing to accelerate a number of changes that are irreversible. Mm. So we will find a solution to this biological weapon, I'm sure, in the fullness of time, um, or I hope. But even if we do, um, we have now dispelled the myth that, for example, um, you cannot work as an organization effectively um, remotely. I know organizations that had tens of thousands of employees for over a decade. Their brightest minds have said it was impossible for them to remote work. Mm. And then within two weeks, they had 40% remote working. Mm. And within four, within four weeks, they had 70% of their workforce remote working when it was supposed to be impossible. Um, so this is an irreversible change. VR and people interacting in VR in, a, in, a, in an easy and powerful way is an irreversible change once you see the power. And it goes on and on and on. Wow. And um, what, sort of, what sort of timeline do you see for... What kind of what kind of timeline do you see for VR? Because one thing I think is super interesting is, you know, with in my own lifetime, certainly, I mean, I'm 33 and seeing the technological change in progress within my own lifetime has been fascinating. Right. I think sort of people of around my age and generation have probably seen the sort of the the quickest and most significant changes in technology, whether you're looking at computer graphics or mobile phone technology and the internet going from, you know, like I'm, I'm still relatively young, but I can remember when it was, you know, dial up internet and it's all really slow. It takes hours and hours to even download a song. You can't do streaming, et cetera. And then in a very quick, a very short space of time, we've got broadband. We're able to do things like what we're doing right now, and it keeps getting faster. You can even do it on mobile without Wi-Fi. Um, look at social yep. media and smartphones. I mean, when was the iPhone invented? Was it 2000 and about 2005 or so, roughly? Um, I was checking this the other day. Um, the keynote speech on the iPhone was um, 2007. 2007, okay. I literally so, was checking it. I yeah. was checking it. Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, and iPhone all yeah. came out um, within, within about three years of each other, three or four yeah. years of each yeah. other. Yeah, so I, I, so I was on Facebook super early. I was on Facebook in 2004, as soon as it opened up to my university, when, when it was still just limited to certain universities. So from, I mean, 2004 is not that, it's, it's not really that long ago. <laughs> so just to think from 2004 to 2020, Social, you know, if you said social, yeah, if you said social media or smartphone or iPhone to someone in 2004, they'd sort of give you a blank stare unless maybe they were on MySpace. But um, the speed at which it's gone to the fact that, you know, everybody has a mobile phone, probably anyone listening to this, if you're not listening to it on your phone, I can almost guarantee that your phone is within arm's reach right now. And everyone has one, even if you go to developing countries. Everybody, everybody has a mobile phone, people are connected, it's online, and it's now almost hard to remember how people used to do everything beforehand. So what I do often wonder is, okay, in 10 or 15 years from now, in 2035, what's going to be that technology or those technologies which are just totally integrated into our lives and our lifestyles and our business, etc., that right now... We, we can't even sort of fathom how much we're going to be using them and depending on them, et cetera. And I assume you think VR is one of them. I, I, I and I spent, I mean, so um, just background, yeah, computer science, AI, but I also <laughs> spend a lot of time doing um, um, graphics development as well in, okay. in, in um, university and so on. Um, I built one of the world's first multiplayer games back in the late 1990s mm-hmm. um, still has a million users. And um, the last job working for someone else before I became an entrepreneur myself um, over 10 years ago was building a massively multiplayer virtual world. And we created a, a virtual currency before Bitcoin. Okay. used by 30 million users. Mm. So I actually have a lot of experience of building games, but I stopped playing games around 12 or 13 years ago because post- like there was a game called Doom and Quake. Um, mm-hmm. Post that, 
every other game that 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 existed after in my mind was basically the same thing with slightly better graphics mm. um and i was waiting for i'd seen us move from text-based games when i was in was in in um um, primary school um, and so it's um, secondary school and primary school playing these really basic games on these early IBMs and then I saw 2D games like Pac-Man and Shinobi and Double Dragon and then I saw us move to 3D mm. and that was another major move and then it's just basically been 3D and, and for, for a long period of time and it was really clear the next one the next stage will go from 3D to we know if you just look at sci-fi, it tells you what the next stage is going to be. Mm. And the next stage is Ready Player One. It's the Matrix. It's, it's Snow Crash. You, you're able to enter these virtual cyberspace. So this is what we needed to have next. Now, when Oculus first came out with their Kickstarter project, um, I, was, I bought one of these initial development kits because it wasn't ready. Mm. I've had the Daydream cardboard vr i've had the daydream view and all of these things it's not ready mm-hmm. and then um a few months ago i put on an oculus quest expecting it not to be ready and we have minimum viable products mm. it's the same with the iphone and mobile phones um i i had the original nokia's that had like two hour battery life and and i had the motorola movie for, um, um phone or is it no, it was a nokia as well from um from the matrix which oh yeah, yeah. The, which yeah. Had the, <laughs> the bottom. i had blackberries i had everything but yeah. even though i'm not a big fan of iphones i did i when when that keynote speech by uh, by um steve jobs came out with the iphone that's when i realized we created we finally created a computer in your pocket mm-hmm. which was the dream for you know, the Star Trek sort of communicator device had now been created. With the Oculus Quest, it, it was still janky. It, it only had 12 apps for the first year. You couldn't have anything more than 12 apps. And there was all these problems, slow battery life. But we knew that we'd finally figured out the right form factor. Now that's happened with the Oculus Quest. And after we'd figured it out, all of our human innovation and, and ingenuity can now focus instead of going in scattergun to make it the ideal experience. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what's happened even in the last year in VR, you'll be astounded. They're, they're looking at holographic, um, I was just looking yesterday, um, Oculus just released two days ago a, uh, a, a, um, a, some of their research. And literally it is the sunglasses um, headset which looks like normal sunglasses oh wow but it's really high quality high field of view vr yeah they're showing and demonstrating with high color gamut better than a normal screen because it uses folded holograms and it literally is stuff <laughs> like literally is stuff out of vr yeah normally they need a lens that needs to be a, a certain distance away from your eye which mm. is why they're so big but what they did is they've created a hologram of the lens so it's like, a, it's literally sci-fi. It's like wow. inception, you know, yeah. um, type stuff. And that's in a period of a year they've advanced and it's an incredible amount. Yeah. So when you're looking at time horizons, back to your original question, and you look at the history of innovation, we can see it's increasing at a, this exponential rate. Um, so many futurists, um, they tend to end up being hired by Facebook to work at Oculus for some reason, but, um, but, or Google. But many futurists have, in different ways, um, come to the same. Have come to a date of 2030, where okay. we, which is the point where we le- we reach this almost this technical technological singularity. I don't know if it's going to be 2030, but if you extrapolate in the speed of innovation and you expect it to be several times faster than it was over the last 15 years, then imagine what we if we think about what we did in the last 15 years. Well, mm. what do you think is going to happen in the next 10? Yeah, it's going to be. This is going to be a very, very, very exciting um, eight to ten years. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. That's that's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's it's weird. It's like with me personally, like, like there's there's a side of me, you know. There's like the because I'm also a, I'm also a computer science graduate, right? So like, you know, there's a part yeah. of me, and I, I love technology. I'm really into you know innovation and stuff. So there's a part of me that's like. Yeah. Awesome. Like I'm super excited. I think, do you know where I think a lot of my pause comes from is that in the past 15 years, I've also seen a lot of the like legitimately detrimental effects, even of just social media. Right. So in terms of people more lonely, suicide rates going up, depression, rising, anxiety, rising, 
um, you know, people's own phys physical health, right? If you're just sitting in front of a computer all day instead of doing any work or manual labor, et cetera, that's not very good for you unless you're counteracting it. And so I think because I've seen that and I've seen that shift happen, especially amongst younger people, as cool as I think the technology is, I'm, I'm also kind of like, man, what's going to happen to people? People's, people's humanity, right? It's cool having like all of this tech and being able to do all this cool stuff. But what's people's, what's going to be the deal with people's physical health, with people's mental health, et cetera, right? How we're already seeing people kind of going nuts as it is. So yeah. I, I, that, that's is, like, I think that's the concern for me. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. And I think everything's going to accelerate and mm. everything is going to be turned up to 11. Um, um, I actually had that fear. And then again, um, I learned to sort of just embrace it and accept. Um, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see different parties form, but on a micro level, you're going to have factionalism at, at the nth degree. Mm. I, I don't necessarily think that having everybody connected leads to this situation where everybody is listening to everybody else. What we see, and again, we just have to observe what happens on things, platforms like Twitter, is that people form these ever more impenetrable um, bubbles mm -hmm. where, they, where if someone has an opposing view, they block them. But every time you block, you reduce communication yeah. and you're only listening to the echo chamber. Um, I, so if you just extrapolate, that's just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, where literally all you know are the people within your echo chamber and you almost never move beyond. Mm. At some point, you're going to start realizing it's going to keep progressing until it becomes ridiculous. Yeah. And then you will realize that my hope is that we will get to a point where people will realize that all of these mechanisms that we have to discriminate, to form views and so on, are actually all BS. And then we will move to this sort of post sort of still just past Neanderthal society <laughs> to this sort of ideal utopian society where people actually um, have a different view. So actually, when you see certain people um, um, get into power in very powerful countries with very, with very um, sort of regressive views, I actually think that's good. And the reason why it's good is it will accelerate to the point where of ridiculousness. You're already seeing some of the things now happening, even a decade ago in, in politics, in, in many major, major um, countries, are literally a year ago would have been, people would have resigned if they ever did, uh, or they would have never allowed to be in power. Now sure. they're allowed to be in power if we don't kill ourselves. Um, <laughs> uh, but I feel also, I think the chance of, I, I did have that worry that we would end up in some sort of war mm. from this. But now I also believe that that's very, that's something gave me a very um, str strong and I think valid argument for why that won't happen, which is wars happen where um, privileged people get or wealthy people get the underprivileged to fight and, mm. and die and why they, why they don't get involved. But now with the invention of um, thermonuclear bombs, it's not possible for two major powers to get in a war without the actual privileged people themselves being affected. Mm -hmm. And so now they can be affected. You're never going to see a war again. Okay, that's an, that's or at least not case. on that scale. It'll be micro wars because I, because now everybody is impacted by it, mm -hmm. not just some subset that you can say you can farm off and go off to fight. Yeah. And so you will still have um, skirmishes in the physical world. You will not have these sort of thermonuclear wars. And again, if you go online and virtual, the needs to have physical wars goes down as well. Mm -hmm. So it just, you so you're going to instead, it's going to be, but, but people do still need to, to have to compete. Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, suggests that people have a desire for esteem, which an esteem requires you to feel more important than someone else. Mm -hmm. So there will still be wars, but there will all be these cold or argument, argument wars, you know, which is what you'll see on Twitter. So yes. verbal wars will happen all the time. Mm -hmm. But I prefer a world where people are having lots of verbal wars and not actually shooting people for, you know, you know, you know, for just going shopping and being the wrong skin tone or, or whatever it is they do. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a super interesting take. Like, um, no, I, I love the conversations like this because it's like it can go, my, my brain is just sort of going in all these different all these different directions and considerations. And um, one thing we haven't talked about, though, of course, is um, your, your bread and butter, which is Bitcoin. So how did you even 
discover Bitcoin to begin with? So, um, I mean, I, so there's a background. I, I was a geek. So I was, I was a CTO, or a head of technology for various tech companies for many years. And I studied computer science and I've been in, interested since I was a teenager. So anytime a new technology comes out, um, especially if it, it seemed to have a relation to some of the themes that I found of interest, i.e., increasing people's access to uh, increasing people's access to technology, making the world more meritocratic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I was I would be interested. Um, so along came Bitcoin, and and I can't remember who, but someone forwarded me an article about it um, in 2011, mm. and so. That's when I first heard about it. I started investigating it, but initially it was purely as a, from a technology technology point of view, and I found it techno, technologically very interesting, but um, I didn't think it would re, it, it would have a, much of a chance. It didn't have any significant value at that time. Was I think it was like twenty pounds or so, mm-hmm. and then I remember the price plummeting down to far lower than I lost about seventy eighty percent of its value, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this is going to be this is useless in that yeah. respect and forgot about it and carried on with my own startup, which, you know, if you know, startups, they take up a lot of bandwidth. Um, and then two years later, my, my soon to be co-founder who had previously angel invested came to me with this idea of, um, coin floor, um, and setting up a Bitcoin exchange in the UK. And I looked at the price and it was now in the hundreds of pounds. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, this is when, the penny started to drop. It still took a couple of years of really understanding it. But what I realized was that this wasn't just a technology, but there was something more behind it. That's something that underpinned it. And, and that's when I really got involved. Um, and I could sort, and that's when I really got excited. Now, when it was in 2011, I thought it had zero chance of succeeding in 2013. I thought probably he's got a 20% chance, but, um, as someone who's um, had um, a couple of startups by that point, twenty um, percent chance is a, is a great chance. Is a, is a, is, a, is, a, is a definitely enough, especially because it's fun, it's exciting, and if it does work, it has the ch- chance to change the world. Yeah. So we got, in, we got involved, and, and the rest was history. That's interesting. So, what was it specifically that made you change your mind? Was it just seeing the the change in the value itself in terms of the price point and the fact that people were buying it and investing in it, or was it something more to do with the technology? So um, the technology I've always found fascinating. Mm -hmm. And as I am now, and I have been for seven years, um, 100% focused on it, I've been able to delve more and more and more into it. And so I'm able to look at it and I've come from a technical background in the first place. So that's allowed me, so that's always been part of it. It's allowed me to realize that there's something incredibly elegant about what Bitcoin does. And also allowed me to realize that basically pretty much every other cryptocurrency misses the point and, and, and by a wide margin. But the other thing it started with the price because the value suggests that people are storing value in this currency, mm-hmm. um, which means that they are seeing something um, something um, interesting um, about it. And that's what got me back in 2013. Mm-hmm. But what's kept me here, it was this realization, as I mentioned before, that I got over the following couple of years that the most powerful thing about Bitcoin, far, which m- almost every other cryptocurrency fails to get, is that the philosophy of the people who support it and and hold it and, and and advance it is completely different to the philosophy of the existing system, and and that is its power. It is an alternative. It's in a different mindset, mm-hmm. and the technology is over time will reflect the mindset of the population of people who use it. Okay. So, so in the case of other cryptocurrencies. So, Even though they so, might, sorry, sorry to jump in. Can you um, can you explain? Can you explain that a little bit more? Because there will be some listeners who are not familiar with Bitcoin at all. So when you talk about that okay. philosophy before comparing it to other cryptos, can you explain okay. that philosophy? No problem. Yeah. And so, no, my pleasure. So there are a number of elements, but fundamentally, Bitcoin at the heart are a number of different philosophies. One of them is that. Um, you should not trust 
other people um, with um, blindly trust other people with your money. And if people are telling you that, look, basically behave like a child, don't worry about your money, we will handle everything for you, you should worry. Now, of course, you should, you should first, you should, you should expect that they will take steps to, um, if you do have to um, look up, have them look after your money, that they will take steps to um, um, look after it for you and provide you evidence that they are doing it. But ultimately, you gain power by holding the, the capital yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, for nearly 50 years, because fiat money, as we understand fiat money today, has only been around for 50 years. People don't realize it's only existed for 50 years. Um, as the predominant form of money. Um, the way you would hold on to money is you'd hold on to money yourself. You could hold it in the form of gold, et cetera, silver, and hold on to your money. But that wasn't practical in a modern digital age. Bitcoin brings back the ability to hold money yourself. And that's one of the core philosophies. Um, so in a sentence, it's don't trust, verify, i.e., uh, and also self-custody, self-sovereignty of your capital. Mm -hmm. These are two very, very different philosophies from the existing system. Now, many other platforms suggest that you shouldn't worry about that. It should be decentralized, but just you don't need to hurry, worry about the decentralization. Lots of big companies will, or, 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 or experienced tech guys and girls will handle the details for you, but it's better than the banking system because it isn't banks. But, it, but if you, if you um, believe in that philosophy, eventually that system will morph into a neo-banking system. Those tech guys and girls will become the new banks mm -hmm. and it will end up looking like the existing system. So unless you start with a philosophy that's different, you will always end up with something that's the same. Gotcha. So in your own mind, you, do you see any role whatsoever long-term for other cryptocurrencies or purely Bitcoin? Uh, so I think that there could be some role potentially. Mm. I, I can't, I can't, everything's a probability based thing. So I don't think it can be put as zero. Yeah. But if you look at the history of money, anytime a new, um, money comes into play, that's better than the, what existed before. Eventually the vast majority of trade volume and value held will be held in that new money. Um, so um, it could be that there's 1% of volume could be coming through all other cryptocurrencies combined. So mm -hmm. that's non-zero. And 1% of a multi-trillion dollar market is, is still a significant amount of money. But the vast majority of value, and I think it's 99 plus percent, will be in Bitcoin in the fullness of time. Mm -hmm. And when you say the fullness of time, what sort of time scale are you are you willing to uh, are you willing to put any sort of time scale on that? Uh, I so that's that's a harder one to do. And yeah. um, one, I think the people in the Bitcoin space again, another difference in philosophy is they, well, so, uh, this is actually an area where I do have concerns actually with Bitcoin. But at least a lot of the people who really understand Bitcoin have a low time preference. Yes. And what we mean by that is that they will keep working on it. They know this is a very powerful technology and it's, and it's, and it's in the job it's trying to achieve or the task it's trying to achieve, which is become the new world reserve currency is a very big task. So whether it takes five years or 15 or 20 years, it, it should, they're still incredibly fast to become the new world reserve currency. Yeah. Um, and so I, but what I can say is with most changes or shifts, the, what tends to happen is that the um, potential energy, the, the desire for the change uh, and the pressure builds and builds and builds. But the actual change happens incredibly fast and often violently. Hopefully, in this case, it won't be violently, mm -hmm. but it tends to happen very quickly. So when it does actually shift, it it will be a case of 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 a musical chairs. Yeah. So if you you either you've sort of you've sort of um um you're you're on the you're on the crypto Noah's Ark or the Bitcoin Noah's Ark or you're mm -hmm. not because when mm -hmm. when the flood comes in you can't then you won't have time to switch at that point. Yeah. So here's a big question based on what on what you've just said. I mean, because 
you, yourself and a lot of Bitcoin proponents and advocates, one thing people talk a lot about is um, increasing equality and you know banking the unbanked, helping out developing countries, etc., and reducing some of the wealth inequalities that are in the world. But that seems a little bit counterintuitive to me because if Bitcoin is to go on and be, you know become massively valuable and massively successful, wouldn't that just totally create income, no, not income, but wealth inequality on a scale that we've never even seen before? Because the people who bought in, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, et cetera, versus the people who sort of come late to the party, wouldn't that just make those people, I don't know, you maybe we'll even end up with some, some trillionaires in that class, and then everyone also be fighting over the scraps. So, or am I missing something there? So I, so I don't think it will lead to, well, first of all, I think that's the, from my, at least from my view, is that um, that's the wrong type of inequality to focus on. Okay. How it's so? not about wealth inequality. It's about opportunity inequality mm -hmm. that you're trying to deal with. It's back to the same things around remote working, being, this, being the norm, um, working in, in virtual reality, so the, so the way you look and, and, and background being the norm. This, these, these could lead to, you, you could have scenarios where um, in VR or in, or in a remote work environment, you can have hyper-centralization where there's certain organizations become incredibly wealthy because of that. Mm -hmm. um, however, the opportunities become equalized. It becomes mer more meritocratic. And that's what I'm personally more concerned about, that everybody has the same chance. Okay. Um, the, so that's one side of it. It's about okay, can opportunity you can you can you go into that a little bit more? How would everybody have the same chance in this world? Okay, so if you if you are not back to some of our early discussions, mm -hmm. if you are able to transact with anybody on anywhere in the world, and there isn't a way to, and and there isn't a inequality of access to the ability to transact, mm -hmm. and and the service that you're providing is is something that's a purely digital service because most services of value will be purely digital and we're seeing that already mm -hmm. the majority of millionaires in the world are either in the financial services space or the technology space which are purely informational based businesses mm -hmm. so it's already the, the reality then um you are able to transact with anybody anywhere in the world and not have to and, and there's no mechanisms to discriminate um between one party or the other other than the quality of the offering that you provide and that is what i mean by equality of the opportunity Okay, I get you. I get you. I feel like there was and, something. And the other, oh, yeah, and the other side is this: that um, if you look back at people's ability to hold on to wealth through generations, mm -hmm. um, it's actually really bad. Historically, um, people aren't necessarily able to maintain wealth. Most people weren't able to maintain wealth from generation to generation to generation pre pre a modern monetary theory and modern monetary theory is all about fiat money and we should borrow and so on and so forth and fractional reserve and all this sort of stuff pre that the, when when we lived in a world where we were basically where we were predominantly had commodity money it was very it was very unlikely that uh, as you pass down your wealth to little johnny or little jane or whatever um that they would manage to keep hold of it because um, if they weren't as good at managing their resources as you, they would make mistakes and so on and tend to lose money. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens today, but the difference is that the, um, inf the, system, the world we live in today where um, uh, we have inflation, so money goes down in value over time, and, and it doesn't actually go down in value. It, just affects, well, it does go down in value, but what that effectively causes to happen is that money is redistributed from from everybody to us to the central bank and then that distributes it down but it ends up staying in the hands of the wealthiest that effectively acts as a compensation for um for incompetence okay. so even though natural incompetence will lead to a redistribution of wealth it's constantly being refilled up at the top mm -hmm. through inflation Mm -hmm. If you remove inflation, then it'll go back to the way we were in a commodity-based um, world where 
if your children or, or, or the people you choose to pass your wealth onto happen to also be as effective a business as you, they will maintain the wealth. And if mm-hmm. they don't, they will naturally lose it, get hacked, um, or whatever it may be, and it will slowly redistribute naturally and be available for other people who are um, willing to work harder and have equal opportunity to take. So you'll have two um, forces which will work together to help equalize um, capital, equalize Mm -hmm. opportunity and equalize capital. Gotcha. Um, And here's another question. How do you see Bitcoin fitting in with all of the other currencies that exist in the world? So do you see Bitcoin being the digital gold or the universal reserve currency and people are still using pounds and dollars and euros on a sort of day-to-day level and on a local level? Or do you see the potential for Bitcoin to almost supersede and sort of just eat eat everything? Uh, I think it's both. And it's just, it's, it's phases. So okay. phase one is Bitcoin is already behaving like a digital gold. Yes. Um, and as this store of value. And, and as such, um, if um, as people, especially in this world where we're seeing, we're, we're likely to experience higher rates of inflation, um, people will um, more and more start to understand the value of holding money in stores of value. And they're trying to do it right now with investing in the stock market, but there are overinflating stocks to beyond their actual value. They previously were doing it in property, but people are priced out of properties, et cetera. And we may be seeing a, a, a price shock on property as well. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is fast becoming a new mechanism to store value um, in the minds of the, it's already in, in my mind and, 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 and in your mind, but mm-hmm. in the minds of everyday people. And the advantage it has over all those others is you can, you can it's, it's far more liquid. You can buy and sell it whenever you want. And you can buy very small amounts. If it wants to, you can buy 10 P's worth mm-hmm. of it, um, which is hard to buy 10 P's worth of gold, even, yeah. for example. Um, so it's accessible to anybody with a mobile phone and, and an internet connection. And so, that's, it's, so because of that, and because that use case is valuable and it can already do that really well right now, that's where we're going to see it start. Mm-hmm. But if you have something that becomes ever more... Um, people build more and more confidence as a store of value, they will then start to, people will, it will become, people will covet it more and more. Mm-hmm. And so the, the next stage, you're going to start to see merchants wanting to accept this ever-increasing store of value in preference over a currency that goes down in value. It's yeah. just a natural incentive to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that won't happen until a number of technological advances are made into Bitcoin in terms of scaling. And, and, but there's huge amounts of work happening in that regard. There are, I'm, I'm not sure the sophisticated of your, of, your, of your listeners, but there are technologies such as the Lightning Network and Taproot and Schnorr signatures and many other things in the background designed to deal with the second phase, i.e. turning it as an, into a, a mechanism to compete with Apple Pay and Google Pay and, and, and PayPal and so on, yeah. and many other things with pay in the name. Um, to be able to transact. Yeah. So you're essentially saying that, uh, to kind of put this in, in layman's terms, that a lot of the concerns people currently have regarding Bitcoin in terms of speed and cost of transactions, et cetera, there's a lot of headway that's currently being made on that. Yes. And it's just a matter of time preference. If yeah. you want it all, if your view is, unless it's fast now, it's useless, yeah. then it's useless. Yeah. Yeah. But if your view is, um, right now, it's a very good store of value. And that's a very valuable thing to do, mm-hmm. especially in a world where values of, of things that we normally are used to storing our value are, are dropping everywhere. Let me use it for that now. And let me wait a few years mm-hmm. for that other use case. I mean, yeah. Right I now, I should <laughs> my big my fiat anyway because that's going down in value. If I've got Bitcoin and fiat, and I've got two, you've got two different things, and one is going up in value over time, the other is going down in value over time. Which one are you going to spend first? Mm-hmm. The one that's going uh, down in value. Exactly. Yeah. So here's a question, and this is um because <laughs> I, I I've I've been tweeting about Bitcoin and writing about I've been tweeting about Bitcoin for for three years. And um, of course, with with an audience like mine, one of the most common things you get, of course, is Bitcoin is a scam. 
So (laughs) for someone who maybe is even listening to this or when I post this interview online, you know, and I get these as expected, Bitcoin is a scam comments. What, what is your, um, what's your sort of best and cleanest response to people who just think that this thing is just, it's just a scam and it's this elaborate plan that, um, we're just gonna, <laughs> we're just gonna. Yeah, no, I've, 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 I've been thinking about this yeah. and, uh, and my answer was be, but, and, and it depends. Do they think, um, all cryptos are scam or they're just Bitcoins a scam? Uh, these, pe- these people tend to think that all cryptos are a scam. Okay. Th- that's the kind so of then they, yeah, that's, So it's really simple. I would say you're completely right just to keep all your money in fiat. Because <laughs> what I've realized is that, as I say, Bitcoin is a philosophy first, technology second. Okay. And it's going to tend over time to ape the philosophy of the, of the earliest people in the group. Yes. And so what I realized is my job is not to get everybody into Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. If, and if, I, if we fill Bitcoin with people who are, who, who are not willing to understand and internalize the philosophy, mm. then it will die before it begins. Gotcha. gotcha. That's the biggest risk. So if someone is starting with that viewpoint and they're really intransigent and not willing to learn, you mm. do not want them into Bitcoin right now. Yeah, they yeah. should stay in fiat and they need to be the last people to come into this space. Okay. But if someone comes in with an open mind and they want to learn and want and are willing to reassess their views about money, mm-hmm. then open doors. So that actually is great because it's, it's like, for example, I like the fact that um, free speech online as someone, as someone told me, because people are becoming more and more comfortable about saying whatever they want to say, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's really good. I pref- much prefer to know someone's an asshole um, um, as opposed to there being an asshole behind my back. I'm with you. I much with prefer. You. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great that yeah. there's freedom of speech because then I can identify the assholes yes. or, uh, um, and, uh, and I can act accordingly. And if someone is saying it's a scam, it's a scam, and they're not willing to listen to anything, then I'm like, great. I know the people who we do not want into Bitcoin right now mm-hmm. when it's still really young and it's still a lot of opportunity. Why spend effort giving them access to this such this fundamental technology and this fundamental opportunity? Yeah. It's once in life the opportunity. Why? When there's other people who are willing to learn. Because I know every day there are ever-increasing amounts. I see it. Yeah. Ever-increasing amounts of people coming in. We're seeing captains of industry and um, we're seeing people who are baby boomers who are who used to a culture of, of saving, and they mm-hmm. see that Bitcoin actually fits um, fits uh, their what they're used to. Oh yeah, I, I got I just, I, my, my my parents have Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just <laughs> tweeted this morning because because I just a realization that's like someone was saying to me, so I just tweeted it's like as kids we are taught to um, save up money and spend carefully. Modern monetary theory and fiat uh, we're taught that um, we should acquire debt and spend carelessly. Yes. And then Bitcoin teaches us, and as Bitcoin holders, you're taught to save Bitcoin and buy carefully. Mm-hmm. Guess which one is right? You know? <laughs> and if you can't figure that one out, then really you right now is not the time because you will eventually come. You'll either come in willingly and learn or you're going to be dragged in. So <laughs> they will come. And I, and I, Bitcoin is this gravitational force, which mm. is dragging everybody in and, but it'll drag the things that are closer to it philosophically yes. faster than the things that are, are that are further away. And it's as simple as that. And you're far away, unfortunately. Enjoy your fear. What a place to end. <laughs> <laughs> Obi, where can people find you online, man? Um, so for, if you want to be um, like bombarded with my musings, then you can go onto Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Obi, O-B-I. It's guys, I was very early into, into Twitter, early adopter, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if you want to see our site and find out how to buy Bitcoin um, in an easy way and you're willing to learn, um, then you should go to coinfloor.co.uk. That's C-O-I-N-F-L-O-O-R.co.uk. Obi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's been amazing talking to you as always. Thank you very much. Great talking to you as well. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.